Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. Social media is full of dead people. Untold millions of dead users haunt the online world where we increasingly live our lives. What do we do with these digital souls? Can we simply delete them or do they have the right to persist? These questions are posed on the blurb on the back of a new book called Digital Souls, A Philosophy of Online Death by philosopher Patrick Stokes. I spoke to Patrick about his incredibly interesting and timely book on December 8, and what you're about to hear is an edited version of that long chat, sadly. Let's get straight into it, starting with Pat telling you a little bit about himself. So I'm Patrick Stokes. I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin Uni. So you've written the book Digital Souls, A Philosophy of Online Death. What led you to write this book? So it's a topic that I've been working on for just coming up to a decade, actually, which initially I was interested in when it was a time when we were living overseas. So most of our communication with people back home was through social media or, or, you know, all of it was electronically mediated one way or another, except when people came to visit and things. So it was all electronically mediated communication and a lot of it, and, and at that time, an increasing amount of it was all taking place through social media. And around that time, I started to notice a couple of people who I knew from, you know, real world context, if you like, I don't like that phrase myself, but, but people I knew offline who had in fact died, who were um, suddenly appearing online in the form of their social media profiles and suddenly um, just, you know, presenting and persisting in this online space. Now, I'm not a philosopher of media. I'm not a philosopher of technology, but I am a philosopher with an interest in, in death and in personal identity. And so it's a topic that kind of piqued my interest there in, in the way in which we we live with the dead, the way in which we interact with the dead and the way in which the dead continue to dwell among us as beings that are given to us to care about, so to speak, beings that are there um, that make us a kind of a demand of love on us or, or a demand of, of ethical regard on us, which is a problem that a lot of philosophers have worked on, but it's a really tricky one because how do you have moral obligations to someone who's died? How can you be obliged to keep a promise to someone who's died? How can you wrong the dead or how can you benefit the dead? So um, so it, 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 it touched a bunch of those actually very ancient questions while also bringing some really modern, intriguing aspects to the problem as well. There are very many intriguing aspects to your book. It is such an entertaining read. Um, Thank you. I want to know, to what extent is online life about cheating death? Because you kind of touched on that just before. Yeah, I don't think that's... a. A deliberate sort of thing or at least it wasn't initially so what started to happen was that as internet users began to die as that became more and more of a, a noticeable phenomenon as the internet took off people started to develop ad hoc rules if you like or norms or practices for dealing with the dead and for sort of you know engaging with um, digital dead people and and working out how to mark someone's passing 
in an online context where people physically can't be together. So that all sort of started. And, but of course these digital remains and started to persist and the, the question arose of what do we do with these? So there was a kind of accidental digital immortality, if you like, it's not really immortality, of course, because nothing online is really forever. In fact, it's surprisingly vulnerable, but it was a kind of digital um, survival of death, if you like, that sort of happens more or less by accident. And that's kind of continuous with a lot of things that we've um, always done with the dead. The dead have always persisted with us in the forms of portraits and photos and, and you know, video and, um, you know, all the way back to, you know, the, the ancestor masks that the Romans used to wear in processions. They were these masks that looked like their long dead ancestors. But then what started to happen was, Again, it's about 10 years ago, you started to have some people entering the sort of um, technology industry, if you like, with these startups where there was a different promise, which is this technology will help you in some sense survive death because we're not just going to have your Facebook profile or your Twitter account or whatever left behind when you die. We're actually going to take uh, some information about you, get you to fill in a questionnaire or whatever, or even capture information about you through your digital online footprint. And we're going to reanimate that information. We're going to actually put it into a an artificial intelligence chatbot, and it will be able to answer questions on your behalf that will sound like you. We'll have an animated avatar of you that will look like you. It's going to be fantastic. People, hundreds of years from now, will be able to talk to you, and and you'll be able to answer these questions in a way that is effectively you. Now, there's a whole bunch of big philosophical problems that are also, opened up by creepy. that. But <laughs> It's also creepy. Also, to date, it hasn't been very well done. So you had people promising this as long ago as 2010, 2011. You had startups back then like Virtual Eternity and others saying, you know, we're going to do uh, all this stuff and we're going to keep people alive through this or, you know, uh, they, they sometimes equivocate a bit. Sometimes they say, oh, it's going to be just a, a sort of a memorialization tool or a way of remembering the dead. Other times they say, no, this is actually about, you know, continuing to live on in a digital way. But the early ones were just really bad. They were really unconvincing um the technology just wasn't there and over time it became more obvious that the technology just wasn't really there and these these companies all started to sort of fall away but then you also at the same time did have these kind of what can i say you have these sort of you have these works of fiction like black mirror for instance that sort of depict uh, people continuing to live on in these in ways that are continuous with their social media presence and so on and then in 2015 a guy called Roman Majorenko, who was a Russian tech entrepreneur, uh, was killed in a car accident. Um, he was hit by a car in Moscow. And his best friend, Eugenia Koida, was also a tech entrepreneur, and she had a business setting up um, chatbots. And he actually hadn't been a big social media user. He didn't leave a lot of stuff online in the social media space, but he did send a lot of text messages. And what she did as a way of memorializing him where she took all of his text messages that he'd sent her over the years, thousands of these text messages, and she built them into a chatbot. And so now anyone can download this chatbot and uh, talk with the dead man. And you can download it for free wherever you get your apps. So um, it, it, it's quite an amazing sort of, and, and as you say, kind of creepy, but but also amazing thing. Now, again, I did when I've tried the, the Mazarenko bot, I didn't find it especially convincing. And... Again, there's various bits and pieces of technology that are appearing and on their own, none of them are entirely compelling. But eventually, it's not hard to imagine that before too long, some of these technologies are going to converge and we are going to get more convincing, if you like, simulacra of the dead being presented to us in these online spaces or through these online technologies. And that, I think, opens up 
a whole range of ethical questions as well as ontological questions, questions about the nature of being, about what is. And we really do need to start working through those questions now before that technology really gets here. Because we've already seen with deep fakes that that technology can get you before you're prepared for it. Right? We're still wrestling with the ethical and the regulatory and the legal dimensions of deep fake technology. All the while, it's getting better and better. So we, I, I don't want the digital dead to sort of fall into that space too, where we're just completely unprepared by the time we get here. I think we need to be laying down some laws or some guidelines now as to how we manage these things, who can reuse these remains, under what conditions and for what purposes and for how long. It's social media presence usually that's used, that's our footprint. And, and, and you discuss this in the book quite, it's quite a fascinating discussion, but you know, digital media are we just performing is it the real self you know is what mm. self is it yeah look I, i've become really skeptical of this idea that who we are online is not who we really are you know i mean you can say that we do sort of put on a, a good front online or we put our best foot forward online or we try and you know present the best version of ourselves we can do online um or we maybe act out a bit of a persona online what I've become skeptical of is the idea that we don't do that the rest of the time anyway. Mm. So I'm a little bit skeptical of the idea that you've got your offline self, which is your true authentic self. And then there's your uh, online self, which is a mere construction or a mere creation. I think it's probably more the case that a lot of our everyday interaction with people, Irving Goffman was saying this back in the fifties and sixties, but that a lot of our everyday interaction with people also involves an element of performance or an element of, yeah. of you know trying to present the sort of persona that we want people to take us to be so and the other thing of course too is that saying that oh it's not my real self online it's not really me that's a really good way of ducking responsibility yeah right that's a really good way of disavowing the things you do online as if they're somehow not real because they take place online and i think the idea that the online space is fundamentally unreal is less and less sustainable as time goes on and part of that's because we just become much more embodied to the internet you know so back in the 90s it made sense to talk about cyberspace. You know, we talked about cyberspace. It made sense to talk about cyberspace because to go online then, you had to sit in front of a desktop computer, right? You had to sit there. You had to physically go to the computer, turn it on, wait for it to make noise and all that stuff. And then you'd go online. And so it was easy to conceptualize the internet as a place, as a, a separate realm that somehow kind of hermetically sealed from the everyday reality in which we work and in which we have our commitments and moral responsibilities and so forth. But that's just not how we experience the internet anymore. The mm. internet is just threaded through our embodied experience of the day, right? You and I are having this conversation right now. I hope it doesn't spoil the magic of radio to say this, but you and I are having this conversation right now through through Zoom. We're having an electronically mediated discussion, um, but I'm also listening to what's going on around me because my family are making a bit of noise and stuff. Sorry about that. Uh, and I'm sort of, you know, um, aware of other things. And then, you know, We'll, I'll be, I've also just heard a ding in my pocket and that's a message on my phone. So, like, oh, I've got to attend to that later on. But that then is going to interact with things that happen in the physical world as well. The internet is just part of our way of moving through the world now. It's threaded through the world. My um, former colleague at University of Hertfordshire, Luciano Floridi, um, Luciano is a, a leading philosopher of information. And, and he has written on this along with some of his colleagues and said that the online-offline distinction is collapsing. And what we are left with is not online or offline, but something that he calls on life. Hmm. Um, now, I don't know that, that neologism is going to set the world on fire, but it's a useful one because it does actually capture something important, which is that the the sort of distinction between, I think there is still some kind of distinction between online and offline, but it doesn't bear the sort of weight hmm. that we used to take it to bear. And it certainly can't be used to firewall us from 
moral responsibilities for the things we do online. We can't say, oh, it's all online. It doesn't matter. It's not real. It's only social media. I think we all know now just what real world effects, you know, there we go again, real world effects that that sort of stuff can have. Well, you can get sued for defamation by a minister. You can get sued for defamation by a minister. Well, this is the thing. So Hubert Dreyfus, who was a leading philosopher of technology from a Heideggerian perspective, he wrote about, he wrote a book um, in the late 90s called On the Internet. And it's it's a really good book, but of course, any writing about any philosophy of technology is kind of um, hostage to fate because you know the philosophy moves slowly and technology doesn't. Mm. And so Hubert Dreyfus wrote this book in the late 90s, saying, "Well, the internet will never be that useful for information searching because there's no meaningful way to search for information." Then we did the second edition in 2008. He's like, "Okay, Google happened. You got me." But one of the things he said was just that you know the the telepresence, the form of presence where we are present to each other through electronically mediated means. He said, we'll never replace full presence. And one of the reasons for that, he said, was that it lacks the vulnerability that comes from being physically in the same space as someone. Mm. Now, I just don't buy that. I think everything we've learned about vulnerability in the online space right now tells us that we are actually vulnerable and even physically vulnerable in the online space. Our experience of the, the internet is much more physical and much more embodied than it used to be. That was Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, Patrick Stokes, explaining why we can no longer sustain the idea of a separate performative version of ourselves on social media. We'll be right back. Calling all filmmakers, the ninth annual Setting Sun Film Festival wants your film. Enter a short or a feature-length film for the chance to see your work up on the gorgeous Sun Theatre screen in Yarraville. The Sun Theatre was voted one of the most beautiful theatres in the world, with up to $10,000 in prizes for winners. Entries close on the 31st of January 2022. Go to settingsun.com.au and enter your film now. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. But of course, not everyone's on the internet. We're talking about a relatively small proportion of the of the world population. I mean, not everyone in Australia, for instance, is on the internet. Yeah, and I, this does actually create an interesting problem, which is one of equity, basically. Namely, that how do we, if we are achieving forms of immortality online, uh, or at least forms of life extension, or at least some kind of valuable extension of, of persistence beyond death. If we are actually doing that, the question becomes, how do we do that equitably when, as you say, a large proportion of the world is not actually yet on the internet? I mean, it's, it is a large proportion, I suppose it is, and it's a growing proportion. But at the same time, not everyone is. Is there then an equity issue that's opened up by that, by the, the non-availability of these affordances online to you know a huge um, percentage of the world's population. I mean, you could you could say that that's kind of well, that's always been the case with most of our life extending technologies, right? They're always you know, yeah, the rich always get the best healthcare and they always get the things that help them live longer and so forth. Yeah, um, and immortality through publishing, for instance. You know, yeah, you could exactly. Argue, you know, right. Everyone wrote yeah. a book. Um, this is true, but at the same time, there's also something democratizing about this, right? And if you mm. think about the fact that you know probably 99% at a rough guess of all humans who have ever lived have left no written trace, mm. have left no image of themselves, nothing. And yet now you could say that all of us, you know, the, the two or 3 billion people or whatever is who are on the, who are on the internet are leaving these, you know, huge traces of ourselves. We are actually leaving a, a repository yeah. 
We're leaving too much of information about <laughs> ourselves. Well, we might be leaving too much, and also that that also generates interesting questions around uh, what we do with it all, right? So we're actually already long past the point. Uh, I think we part. I think it was noted as early as two thousand and nine that we'd already passed the point where the cost of actually employing someone to delete files at the average wage is more expensive than the cost of digital storage media. And what that means is it's now cheaper to remember everything by default than to forget, right? It's actually wow. cheaper to store everything than to remember. But the amount of data that the dead leave behind, of course, grows exponentially year on year. And there's interesting questions there. Firstly, companies like Facebook and other such companies, I keep going back to Facebook, just it's the obvious yeah. one, but of course it applies to any social media network. These companies are kind of entitled at some point to say, hang on, we didn't sign up to be the world's graveyard, mm. right? We didn't sign up to be a repository of information about every human being who's ever lived. We just signed up to run a social media company. And so it's kind of, on the one hand, they've probably got a right to say, we don't actually want to, to store all this data. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, someone has to store that data. Surely, surely it has to persist in some way, you know, and, and, you know, if we think it's valuable. But the other question with that, of course, is that data storage is not zero cost. Yes. Data has to be stored in servers. Servers are expensive to run and they take up a lot of electricity and they also produce a lot of heat on their own as well. So they have to be cooled, which takes up even more electricity. So, you know, there's, there is an environmental cost. There's a cost just in terms of, of, um, of carbon in storing the digital dead, maintaining the digital dead. So it's it's not as if any of these questions present themselves with easy answers. On the one hand, I think we do actually have some sort of, of prima facie duty not to delete the dead. I think we should actually store this stuff rather than letting the dead just slip into oblivion. But on the other hand, there are very real costs about that and very real questions around who should be entrusted to do it and who is obliged to do it. I say entrusted too. I mean, this is the other thing is, we, we keep talking about the internet as if it's forever. And there's, there's a good heuristic there, right? It's good to say mm. to people, you know, anything you put online is there forever mm. is what you're really saying is you've lost control of it. But in fact, data is really vulnerable to any number of things. Servers fail, businesses go out of business. That happens all the time. And that's probably one of the big um, threats to a lot of this data is that, you know, the, the corporations with whom that data now resides could go out of business tomorrow. I can imagine a Facebook spin-off, dead book. I don't know. <laughs> dead book, yeah. Well, I, there's... Better than There's been attempts to do it, but I mean, this, the thing is for now, at least, it's actually, it, it, it works in companies like Facebook's favor to have dead people online for the simple reason that if you've got dead users mixed in among living users, as we have now, living users still interact with those the profiles of dead people and there's actually a lot of really good research on this on the ways in which we continue to interact with dead people long after they've died online we come back to their web to their facebook profiles or whatever we write messages to them for years in second person which is really interesting i can't believe you've been gone five years mm. i wish you could see how big little billy is that sort of thing so you know we have this interaction and that actually does work to the tech company's advantage right now because all the time that you're on the website looking at a dead person's profile that's time you're still on the site and you can still be sold to advertisers. So there's, it, for now, it works to their benefit, but there's going to be some point mm. at which the cost-benefit equation for those companies just no longer makes sense. I think you give 2050 as the year where there'll be more dead people on Facebook than live ones or something like that. There have been attempts to do this. So Carl Oman and his colleagues have tried to do this and they come up with a couple of scenarios. The big problem, of course, is that it's actually really hard to guess what's going to happen to these companies. Because, I mean, the tech space is still relatively new. It's still relatively familiar. Sorry, it's relatively novel. And the idea that somebody like Facebook or Google could disappear 
might seem kind of counterintuitive to us now. You might think, oh, these these are tech giants, they're too big to fail. But of course, these companies have really only been with us for you know a couple of decades. If and that. it's entirely possible. Yeah, if that, it's entirely possible that they'll they'll cease to exist or go under. So I don't know. The two themes are basically the ways that technologies allow us to, uh, the dead to persist among us in enhanced ways and the way in which the technologies risk turning the dead mm. into mere fodder for the living. Can you talk a little to that? So my friend Adam Buben, who is uh, also a philosopher of death and also a Kierkegaardian, and uh, terrible at karaoke. Um, he talks in this in terms of replacement versus remembrance. He says, right, so some of the things we do online are clearly acts of remembrance, right? We are using the technology to remember the dead in the terms that I would use to help the dead to persist in the life to world of the living, right? To give them a kind of ongoing persistence among us as morally compelling people. But what can happen, as Adam puts it, is it slips into remembrance, sorry, into, re into replacement, right? Mm. So in replacement, what you're doing is not so much remembering the dead as saying oh no they're gone i will miss our chats oh wait i don't have to miss our chats because i've got this chatbot now right so and in a way all that's doing is basically replacing the dead with a sort of a digital version of them that we can continue to interact with as if they hadn't really died and my main worry about that is that actually not only is it kind of exploitative of the living of the dead potentially but it's also kind of really kind of crass towards the living because it's saying to the living yeah look i just i don't love you for you i love you for the role you play in my life and when you die i can get something else to play that role so i mean at one stage in the book perhaps ill advisedly i say that um remembrance of the, the dead through preserving digital remains is kind of like getting your pet taxidermied when it dies yeah. whereas replacement is more like getting an identical puppy and giving it the same name right it's, it's kind of now in a way that's First of all, it's kind of weird and creepy to do. Although I think Schopenhauer used to do that. He used to get poodles and call them all the same names. But um, but it's also kind of, in a way, disrespectful to the earlier pet because you're kind of saying to it, I could replace you with another one. You're fungible, you're exchangeable. Yeah. Um, so that that's part of the concern. But there's also this concern too, that just the dead can't speak for themselves. They can't defend themselves. And so there is a real question about what we can morally permissibly do with the dead can we reanimate them can we reuse them in things we've seen small scale things on that with you know appearances of long dead actors in in movies and things like peter cushing and, and to a lesser extent carrie fisher in the star wars movies that have come out in recent years there's talk of casting and nothing seems to have come of this really but there's talk of casting james dean in a movie which was set in the vietnam war which actually started a few months after james dean died so there's talk of doing that now you could talk in those cases and say well these are commercial uses governed by you know the estates of those people that have died but there are i think real questions around who has a right to reuse the dead in that way and mm. for what purposes you know are the dead entitled to certain kinds of or to not be subject to certain kinds of use and does that right solely rest with the estate yeah right there's an interesting question there about and is the estate in that sense using them as a kind is there a kind of ownership that we should be thinking of there they own the image of that dead person or should we be thinking instead in terms of stewardship Right, that you know, in a way the estate is kind of the custodian of that person, or they're stewarding that person, they have to to defend their interests, and that's going to re involve rethinking a lot of things. Um, you know, the idea that the dead have interests, that the dead have property rights, that the dead have privacy rights. Those are things that just don't exist in the legal system we have right now, and they probably are going to have to sort of. They do exist in some legal systems, and we probably are going to have to look at some changes there if we're going to rethink what digital remains are and what we are allowed to do in the face of them it's like can we allow the dead to remain dead in a way 
What's yeah, I mean, should we just leave them to, to remain dead? I mean, the, de the dead are amb ambiguous anyway, right? I mean, mm. you think about the dead and the dead are radically absent, but they're also very much present with us. They still play a big role in our lives. They still present themselves to us, but they also depend on us. And without us, they, they, they can't have any kind of existence anymore. So there's, there's these multiple layers of ambiguity around the, the presence and absence of the dead and the being and, and non-being of the dead. And digital media, I think just, it doesn't invent that problem, but it massively complicates that problem and it opens up new avenues for survival, but also new avenues for abuse. I did have another question about the uploading mines. So the, the other option there is that some transhumanist groups and others are saying, well, what we can do is we can eventually upload your entire mind into a computer network. And some philosophers who have looked at this, so Kevin O'Neill wrote a book called Internet Afterlife, where he looks at this question of, of um, survival through these technologies. And, and he's very skeptical of, of some of the stuff that I talk about. So things like, you know, living on through digital remains. He says, no, 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 real living on after death would be the mind upload. Now, to me, I think I've got some pretty technical objections to that. But the main one is just that firstly, we don't know that a computer could ever have consciousness or could ever experience anything, could have first person experience. Secondly, even if it could, what does it mean to say that the consciousness the computer is having is my consciousness, mm. that I could look forward to having that computer's experiences? So even if, I don't know how the hell we'd do this, but even if we could convince ourselves that, that a computer was having first personal direct subjective experience, we don't know how to re-identify subjectivities in such a way that I could say that that's my experience happening in that computer and not someone else's or not just a, a copy or a replica or a recreation. That was Patrick Stokes, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin University, talking to me about his book, Digital Souls, A Philosophy of Online Death. Even though we are in a pandemic, or perhaps because of the way it has brought thoughts of death closer to the surface, I highly recommend this thoroughly entertaining and cogent book about why this is the time to think about the legacy every one of us who spends time online is creating. It's full of both interesting and poignant stories about people and the history of technology, and it treats its readers and its subject matter with great respect. Thank you for joining us for the last communication mixdown of the year. We're going out tonight with a song chosen by Pat. This is The Smiths with This Charming Man. Good night. Someone